Good afternoon to each of you. If you'd take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, we find ourselves at the end of chapter 1, getting rather ambitious by taking a very lengthy section um, compared to the first several sermons uh, that we were unpacking. Today is Reformation Day, and sometimes I will preach a special, special message um, about that, and um, this time I opted not to with all the prayers and excitement of, of a new exposition in the Gospel of John, and so um, come next year and I'll probably preach a, a special Reformation sermon, but we are always about justification by faith alone, and that comes through on every single Lord's Day. But since there's no special sermon, I do have a Reforma- an illustration from the Reformation, at least, that I could use as we would kick off um, this sermon. Some of the most celebrated Christians in heaven are not so much those that had the elaborate gifts and the great reformers, but is the, the, the smaller people, we might say. I don't mean that in a, in a demeaning way. But it's those that just humbly seek to witness for Christ and have an impact on the expansion of the kingdom of God. There was an English monk by the name of Little Bilney. He was called that because he was a very short man, Little Bilney. And uh, he was influenced by the writings of Martin Luther and the other reformers and joined the Protestant Reformation. He realized himself not to be that educated, but he noticed a priest that was very educated that did not know, understand the gospel. And he prayed, how might I be a witness to share the gospel with Hugh Latimer? the great English reformer. Well, uh, after some time of prayer, he realized that since these priests were, um, I don't know how to move all this stuff, but I like to be able to see people when I preach. <laughs> Sorry, ladies. <laughs> um, he said, how might, how might I reach Hugh Latimer, a, a man that has great potential? And so he was praying and praying, and then he realized priests have a responsibility to hear the confession of sins. So he says, ah, I know what I'll do. He told Hugh Latimer, I would like to confess my sins. So as they entered the confessional booth, he confessed the righteousness of Christ being imputed to his account. He confessed being justified by faith alone. He dismissed the idea of works salvation and that apart from good works, he declared this glorious gospel. When Latimer was converted, as a result of that, it drove him down to study more and more. And as you know, if you know anything about the English Reformation, he became one of the greatest preachers of all time. He himself was martyred uh, under Bloody Mary. So today we're going to see something of the importance of sharing our faith, that every single person can be used of God. It doesn't matter if you're a little building or a, a tall bin, you know, uh, but, but you can be used of God in sharing the glorious gospel. So we're going to be taking up John chapter 1, 35 all the way to the end of the chapter. There's two parallel sections, and so what I'd like to do is just read 35 to 42 first for us, and then when we get to um, uh, verse 43, we'll... We'll read that section. So follow along with me, reading from the New American Standard Version. <clears throat> Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God 
And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means to Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. Let's pray. Father, we confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. And apart from the help of your spirit, not a one person in here can remove distractions and come to your feet to learn of your word. But Lord, we beg that you might draw near even now, that you might assist the weak one that's proclaiming your word, that you might assist all those that are in the chairs, Lord, to, to not be distracted, Lord, that we would learn of you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message is simply, Come and See, because you'll see it twice in this passage. Come and See. Now, John, as we considered back in verse 13, the testimony of John, he was a faithful witness of Christ. He pointed away from himself and pointed to Christ. So John the Baptist was indeed a faithful witness, even a paradigm of what a witness might be. And of course, the Pharisees and the religious rulers, the priests and the Levites, they they hear about this cabussel of John the Baptist, so they send a delegation, as it were. Who are you? Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet that we're to expect? No. Well, then who then are you? And what does he do? He reads, he quotes basically Isaiah, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And so he declares that. And then, of course, his message on the next day, uh, behold the Lamb of God that takes away to the sin of the world. We considered there the object of the Lamb and the picture of the Lamb, even as our devotional around the Lord's Supper this morning in our prayer meeting, had to do with Leviticus 16. And you remember that once a year on the Day of Atonement, that lamb was slain and the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, but then the other lamb, the the, the scapegoat, went out into the wilderness and it's a picture of our sins being taken away. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ has done. It's a beautiful picture of exactly what John the Baptist proclaims. Behold, the Lamb of God, what does he do? He takes our sins away. That's good news. That is good news, because there's no one else that could do it. He came to seek and to save the lost. And as we come to our text today, we see the first followers of Christ, as it were. We see some of the first disciples of Christ. The other Gospels record Jesus calling the disciples and the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here in John, we see Disciples, one by one, slowly attaching themselves to Christ because of the witness of John the Baptist. Now, my purpose is that our aim and our ambition as believers would be 
that we would want to make disciples and see people come to Jesus Christ. Is that your desire? Or, or, or have you just been in the faith so long that it's kind of like drudgery and, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, when I was young Christian, I did that. No, that should be the burning desire of our hearts if you're in Christ. You've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You want others to taste and to see. You want your family members to repent and to be converted. You want your friends. You want your co-workers, your neighbors, my 88-year-old Margaret neighbor that's deceived into Roman Catholicism. And she's heard the gospel from me, and I'm looking for new opportunities to share that. We want our aim and our ambition, our ambition to see disciples made for Christ. Is that, was that not Paul's aim? For though I am free of all men, I made myself a slave to all that I might win more. To the Jews, I became a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those that are under the law, under the law not being myself under the law, but that I might win those under the law. That should be our ambition and our aim, to tell people, come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So we're going to unpack this whole text, believe it or not, um, in four points. And my points are really in the form of questions to actually ask you. You might even just want to jot them down or or whatever. They're, They're in the form of questions. First of all, What is it that you seek today on October 30th, 2022? What is it that you seek? Secondly, do you share your faith with others? Third, is Christ calling you? And fourth, what great things have you seen from the Lord and what he has done? So first of all, verses 35 to 39, what is it that you seek? Well, John the Baptist continues to point away from himself Notice it says here, our text begins again the next day. <clears throat> I find this fascinating. What we have from one nineteen to 2.11, perhaps even to the end of 2, is the first week of the ministry of Christ. Right? Verse 19, it says the testimony of John, and then you have the next day, uh, one twenty nine here in 35, you have the next day, and verse 43, you have the next day, and then they travel to Galilee a couple days away, and then even the wedding at Cana, right, is on the third day. So that makes up seven days, and it's remarkable to me. So this is the third day. The very nature of John was to point, him, point away from himself, but even doing that, even being the forerunner of de- declaring who would come, whose sandals he was unfit to tie, Even that, he generated a following. So John the Baptist had disciples that were following him, that had eyes of expectation for Messiah to come. And John is standing there with two of his disciples, we're told. See it there? Right there. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Well, this is the same message as the day before. If I come next week and preach this same message next week, right? <laughs> would, that, would that be okay? Well, Spurgeon says, no one needs a new sermon when, behold, the Lamb of God is the old one, and it's just as good for any time. Verse 37, notice the disciples. It says, the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. So these are followers of John the Baptist with expectation. They hear the declaration, behold, the Lamb of God, And there's Jesus, and what they do is they break away from John the Baptist, and they begin to follow Christ. 
This indicates several things. The effectiveness of John the Baptist in pointing away from himself, preparing a way for Messiah, and also the disciples being truest to the teaching of the forerunner, that there is one coming that is worthy to be followed. Him you shall follow. And then in verse 38, And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? Jesus turned. It's uh, the, the, the tense in the Greek vividly pictures a sudden act of hearing footsteps behind you and turning around. You ever have that when you're walking on a sidewalk and you're kind of on a public street and there's nobody behind you and you're walking along and then suddenly you hear footprints or footsteps, right? And that's the idea here is Jesus hears this. He turns around. He doesn't say, whom do you seek? He says, what do you seek? Now, Jesus would say that language, whom do you seek? at other times later, even in the Gospel of John. But here it is, what do you seek? These are the first words out of the mouth of Christ in John's Gospel, right? Mark, it's very clear, repent and believe, right? That's one, Mark 1.15. But here are the very first words that we have at least recorded here is what do you seek? It's a penetrating question, actually, if you think about it. It it bids them to search their innermost longings and desires. On the one hand, it could be a simple question of curiosity. What do you seek? But on the other hand, on a deeper level, Jesus is asking them what they seek and what they want. It's as though Jesus is asking them, you've heard the claims of John the Baptist, and now you want to follow me? Am I what you want out of this life? You know, that's, that's kind of the idea here. You see, Jesus is following a line straight to where? The cross. The cross. And his followers will be, would be told that you are to lay down your lives and take up your life in discipleship. Are you sure you want to follow me? What do you seek? Do you seek the comforts of this life? Do you seek other things? What is it that you seek? The question is what we need to ask any that are seeking Christ. Somebody that we may be sharing the gospel with, and they say, well, this, I just felt a warm fuzzy. Wow. I wonder what, we need to ask that penetrating question. What is it that you seek? There's several things people seek. Well, for the first century, here under the tyranny of Rome, Some may have been hoping for the messianic political reformation, right? And so some of these first century followers may may have been seeking that. Others may be looking to him as rabbi, even as we have a couple times in the text. I'm looking for a good moral example by which I may follow to live this life. Well, indeed, he was a good moral example, but he's much, much more. For some and many... They're seeking to escape the difficulties of this life. But you know what the irony is? Following Christ, following Him faithfully, will bring more difficulties and trials often into your life. Oh, you'll receive extra grace that you might be able to sustain them. But, but, but these trials come to us in greater magnitude and more difficulties. Remember when the disciples were in in the boat with Jesus? You remember? He says, let us go to the other side. 
And what happens? That big storm comes. You remember that? And, and, uh, and, and the disciples think, don't you care that we're going to perish? Jesus is sleeping there. And you, you see the picture here that, that Jesus did not keep them out of the storm, but he had delivered them through the storm. Coming to Jesus because you want less difficulties in your life may be an ill motive. Others seek pleasure, uh, sexual immorality, substance abuse, the partying lifestyle. What do you seek? What do you seek for me? Or even others may be seeking power and prestige. Maybe others have a career of which if they had just a little religion sprinkled over here, it might booster how people look at them. What do you seek? Andrew and John, who were here, they didn't say, well, we want to be wealthy fishermen. We want to have all the comforts in the life. They don't say that. In fact, later in John 6, a fascinating chapter, when we get there, Jesus had just fed the 5,000. He had said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you do not seek me because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled you see, they were following the bread machine in an area where there was not much food. And, and Jesus calls them out. What is it that you're seeking? You did not seek me because of the signs, but because you were filled. In other words, are you seeking Christ because you want your physical appetites satisfied? What are you seeking today, my friend? Do you want all the benefits of being a Christian and being looked at as an upright man or woman without being a committed disciple of Christ willing to deny himself and to go, as it were, to the cross? Jesus would say, I've been presented to you as one who takes away the sin of the world. Are you wanting to be rid of your sin today? Are you wanting to hate your sin all the more that you might be delivered? Or are you coming to me because you want creature comforts? Are you coming to me because you want your sin taken away that you might worship and serve the triune God with greater diligence and faithfulness? You see, what I think we need is a singular focus. The psalmist gets it right. One thing I've asked of the Lord. And notice, that shall I seek, right? that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. The great evangelist George Whitfield said, God, give me deep humility, a well-guided zeal, a burning love, and a single eye. You can do anything when you have that single eye. Mary and Martha, Luke 10, Martha's bustling around, hustling around, getting everything ready and preparing and even complaining that Mary's not helping. And where's Mary? At the feet of Jesus with a singular eye to learn of him. That's what we need, brethren. That's what we need. Indeed, John does not provide the answer that they gave. Well, in a sense, he does. Let's, let's. So Jesus turned and, saw, turned and saw them following and said, what do you seek? Now, I don't know if there was other dialogue, but, but notice here, then they said, Rabbi, where are you staying? What do you seek? Well, Jesus, what's your address? 
right? It's almost like, it, it just seems like it doesn't follow quite right. But there's a little bit more to it than that. Where are you staying? The disciples may have been confused about the question, did not know how to answer, and so they asked that question. But more likely, it is their way of stating, we want to have intimate, alone time with you, Jesus. That's what we want. And so, verse 39, and he said to them, come and you will see. And they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. This is a warm and polite invitation. Come and you will see. Come, as it were, come and you will see. It contains a promise that you will see if you come. The delighted disciples knew that this constituted the beginning of their intimate fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the proverb says, I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me shall find me. It's a glorious promise. Come and see. And so it says they stayed there, an indication of prolonged fellowship. Now the term, if you look at it, where, in verse 38, where are you staying? Then he said to them, so they came uh, where he was staying, and they stayed for the day. And so that, that word stay is repeated. It's a key term that John will use several times through this Bible, it's, it's, through this gospel. It's, it's a simple word, meno, in the Greek, but it's the word that we see abide or remain, and it can be translated to stay. And it's repeated here for emphasis, and even just think when we get to John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who menos with me, abides with me, stays with me, will bear much fruit. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch that dries up and is gathered and cast into the fires. But if you abide with me, my words in you, Whatever you wish, it shall be done for you. So, this picture of staying, remaining, intimate fellowship, it's a beautiful thing. And then, if you ever, I mean, I've read this so many times, and, and just, you know, look at the end of verse 39. For it was about the 10th hour. Isn't that kind of randomly inserted? This was 2,000 years ago. Do we really need to know what hour of the day it, it was, you know? And you ask yourself that. Furthermore, it can mean, to, if, it's, if you're talking Jewish time, which would start at 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. roughly, the 12 hours of the daytime roughly, um, you would be talking about 4 p.m. around the time when people are beginning to shut down outdoor activities as the sun is beginning to set. But if it's Roman time, it's 10 a.m. And there's all kinds of squabbles about that. I don't think it really matters. I know that John, when he refers to time later in the gospel, does tend to use Roman time, but the point is, what's the point here? Why is it recorded? It's because John the evangelist will never forget this encounter. The first encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, a converting encounter, no doubt. This is the time that he met his Lord and Savior, and he can never, ever forget that. So faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. In a very real sense, when we are converted to Christ, we, we never forget when that happened. Now, some of us 
can point, some of you can point to the exact day. Some of us don't have an exact day, but certainly a period in our life, a, the, 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 the 10th hour, certainly for us and in our own lives, at some point, there was a radical conversion, a manifestation of the mercy and the forgiveness of Christ on the merits of Christ imputed to my account by which now I have peace with God. Do you remember that day for you? Do you remember your 10th hour? You should. Our second question, do you share your faith with others? Verse 40, it says, one of the two who heard John speak followed him was Andrew. Now, by the way, one of the two, why, is, why is the other disciple not named? It's because John the evangelist never refers to himself in this gospel, but no doubt that's who it is. The other one, the silent one, as it were. It's getting a little hot up here. So, um, John, one of the two, likely the unnamed disciple, the, the disciple whom Jesus loves, he refers to himself. Now look here in verse 40. One of the two that heard John speak, followed him, was Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. And he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. You know what this shows me? You don't have to be a mature Christian. You don't have to have a seminary degree to share your faith. You need just a basic, simple testimony that your life has been changed. We have found Messiah. Andrew immediately shares his faith and first comes to even to his own brother. He, he's, he's willing to not be in the limelight. Andrew, you know, even when John refers to him, it says the brother of Simon, right? It's, it's, um, it, Simon Peter, well, much more well-known. Andrew's less well-known. He doesn't need to be in the limelight. He doesn't need to be the center of attention. He just wants to be faithful with the message. And so too, for us, evangelism is much more effective with people that we know, with family and neighbors, because they can see the changed life that has taken place. Much more effective than, say, going out knocking on doors around this neighborhood. There's nothing wrong with that. We can share the good news. But it's much more effective going to those that know you because they look at you and they can see the evidence of a changed life. And so, when he says, we have found Messiah, in the Greek, that's the Greek word, Eureka! Right? When the gold rush, what did they say when they discovered gold? Eureka! Right? And how much more precious is Jesus than gold? We have found, we've Eureka'd the Messiah. She sees sharing your faith should be a natural impulse of a follower of Christ. If you have peace with God and assurance of your salvation, go share that faith. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that, that you know so much more than what Andrew knew. We have the completed revelation. We have the entire New Testament. We understand some of the nuances that hasn't been, wouldn't have been clear to Andrew, at least at this time. So we need to go and find, go and tell, and go and bring people to Jesus Christ. You know, in Acts chapter 10, we don't have time to, it's a lengthy chapter, but what happens? You have the, it's the account of Cornelius. You remember Cornelius, um, the Gentile, and uh, an angel comes and says, your prayers have been heard. Now, when the angel comes, he doesn't tell him, 
Your prayers have been answered. Now sit down. I'm going to explain the gospel to you. The angel doesn't do that. What does the angel say? Call for Peter. You know, the guy that sticks his foot in his mouth a lot. Call for that guy. Call for the imperfect guy. Call for Peter. And of course, you know the account. Peter comes and preaches the gospel, and him and his entire household are are converted and baptized. What does that show us? God is pleased to use weak and frail creatures in the spreading of this glorious gospel. Do you believe he can use you? Has he used you? He's pleased to use weak, frail, sinful humans who have been transformed by God's grace in the spreading of the gospel. Secondly, under this point, you can't convince anyone to believe. You might say, well, I've been told, I've been encouraged in the sermon, go share my faith, and, and I, I'm sharing repeatedly, repeatedly, and this certain person is not believing. You cannot talk people into the kingdom, right? We believe in the sovereign grace of God. We believe in the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, right? What God requires of us is to get the message out. We leave the results up to him. How do you get the message out? You could give your testimony. You could share. We we needed a table back here. Normally we have gospel tracts for you to take. You could take a gospel tract and give it to a coworker. You could give a copy of a Bible. You can invite someone to church. You can send them an MP3 sermon. All manner of ways in which you can do this, but you have to remember that mankind in and of himself is dead in sin. He's a corpse. You you can kick a corpse all day long, and guess what it's going to do? still be a corpse. It needs new life breathed into it. And that's a picture of the power of converting grace. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God, being rich in mercy, right, breathes life. So pure spiritual truth is foolishness to those who are blind to spiritual things. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation, the message of the cross. Only the Holy Spirit can convert a person by revealing the glories of Christ. And then in verse 42, we see here that Jesus assigns a new name to Simon. He says here, um, and he brought him to Jesus... And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. Very simply, Jesus is already exercising his authority over Peter. He gives him a new name, which would indicate something of what his life was to be. We will see even more develop, but Jacob in Genesis 28, um, he was given a new name to what? Israel. You have Saul, the persecutor, in Acts 9, given the new name, Paul, right? And so uh, that's what we have here. Well, let's uh, consider our our third and fourth point. I'm going to read this section. The next day, here's the fourth day, he purposed to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. But Philip, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, Come and see. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there's no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open. You will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So first of all here, we see it's the next day. This is the fourth day from verse 19. It says that he purposed to go to Galilee. Um, there's a question as to what the antecedent of he is. Most likely it's to Christ, Jesus purposes. The word is that he has a strong desire. He's willing to do something. Jesus takes the initiative. He comes to Philip and he simply tells him what? Follow me. Discipleship language indeed. Philip did. And in the following verses, we'll see that, that he had an immediate result in his life and a burning desire to share the gospel. Follow me. One of the favorite terms of Jesus in Matthew 8.22, Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their dead. After the resurrection and restoration of Peter at the very end of this very gospel in chapter 21, where he says, Peter, do you love me? Tend my lambs three times there. What does he say at the end there? He says, he's signifying what type of death that he would glorify God. And then he spoke to him and said, follow me. That struck me. This is like right before the the ascension, right? Follow me. Now, Jesus found Philip, right? Verse 43, we have that there. He comes upon him, says, follow me. And of course, um, he did, which means to keep following me. But it doesn't take long before, in verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him on whom Moses had spoken. So what you have here is something of the idea of Jesus finds Philip, but yet as Philip would share with Nathanael, he's saying that he's the one that found Messiah. And some would try to make a contradiction out of this, but even consider in your own conversion, there's a sense in which you, your eyes were open and your human responsibility that you responded to the gospel, what you know that it's the Holy Spirit that had regenerated you and called you to come to him in the first place, or you never would have believed. Now, Philip finds Nathaniel, verse 45. Nathaniel is from Cana. And his name does not occur in the Synoptic Gospels. I find that rather interesting. Is he one of the 12? Is he called, was this just an additional um, uh, disciple? And most likely, this is what we know as Bartholomew in the other Gospels, right? We're familiar with that name because Bartholomew does not occur in the Gospel of John, and Nathaniel doesn't occur in the other three, so most likely they're one and the same man, Barthalma, Bartholomew. Now look here in verse 46, you see Nathaniel initially is, is kind of a doubter, isn't he? What does he say there? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? What do you think would prompt such a thing? Well, I already mentioned that he's from Cana, 
Nazareth was a neighboring town. They're only four or five miles apart from each other, two to 5,000 people. There was probably some town rivalry there, and he had some cane of pride, I guess, against Nazareth. And, of course, he says what he says, and Philip gives the best and possible answer rather than debating um, all of that, that actually Jesus is from Bethlehem. <laughs> He's not, right? He doesn't do all that. He just says, come and see. Come and see. And, and, and that's instructive for us, that sometimes somebody might say something, and rather than drilling down to correct what they've said, come and see. Focus on the big thing. Focus on what really matters. Come on and see. Isn't that what the woman at the well in John 4 would say? Right? She's like, come and see a man who told me all things that I have done. Is this not the Christ? Come and see. She tells the people in that town after that engagement with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, evangelism isn't so much accomplished by um, apologetics, um, but rather presenting the truth of who Christ is. Come and to see. Now, Now, apologetics, of course, has its place, right? It's got its proper place, but evangelism positively should be a revealing of who Christ is and what he has done, the person and work of Christ. You too may ask questions, and you may be asked questions as you're sharing your faith. You don't have to give an answer to every single question, because what happens is oftentimes those will be rabbit trails that will take you off of the main thing. And so to be focused on that, our fourth question Verse 47 to 51, what great things have you seen? In verse 47, you have this, really this dialogue between Jesus. Jesus saw Nathanael coming. He said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit, no guile. And what that means is he's an honest, he's an upright man, and Jesus knows it. An Israelite indeed, he's, he's living up to his covenant name, no doubt studying the law and the prophets, maybe under that fig tree. But he puts a deliberate emphasis on guile. Because Jacob, the Old Testament patriarch, whose name was changed to Israel, right, was full of guile. He was a scoundrel, you remember? He was a scoundrel, but he loved God. And he was the elect one, as it were. And God worked in his life until finally that wrestling scene of which we've seen there in Genesis 28. Well, when Jesus says that, before he called you, I saw you under the fig tree, what we have here is uh, he's astonished. He's, he's, Nathaniel is astonished. Jesus saw Nathaniel's heart, that, that, it, that not only his presence there, but his heart not being filled with guile. Later in chapter 2, um, after the the, the area or the section here on the temple, it says in verse 24, and Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He knows all men. He knew Nathaniel. Even as it says in Hebrews 4, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So Nathaniel answers, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Whether he had heard something of the preaching of John the Baptist or not, we do not know. We know that he was certainly a student of the Old Testament because when Philip finds him, he says, 
Is this not him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets spoke about this Messiah? And so he, he, he obviously was a student of the word, but Nathaniel was not only guileless, without guile, but he was able to put two and two pretty quickly here. This is an omniscient son of God. He has seen me. This, this must be God. <laughs> and so what does he do? He gives two messianic titles here in verse 49. Rabbi, first of all, a term of respect. And what does he say? You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That is remarkable. It may sound anticlimactic to us, but Nathaniel uses these two messianic terms that he knows occurs in Psalm 2, which is so important to us. And in the, the, a term, even the king of Israel would be said at the triumphal entry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Remember, so Nathaniel, a skeptic, seems like at first quickly corrected, right? You'll remember in John chapter 20, there's another skeptic that finally professes the deity of Christ, Thomas, who wasn't there after the resurrection. He missed Jesus being there with the disciples. He said, I will not believe unless I can put my finger into his, the wound of his hand and into his side and all that. And what happens? Jesus comes the following Lord's Day. You don't want to miss Lord's Days. You miss important stuff. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Jesus was there. <laughs> right? And, and Thomas missed it. I don't know. Maybe there was a football game on or something. But anyway... Uh, sorry, <laughs> but um, and what, what does he say? He says, my Lord and my God, right? A term of deity. Well, verse 50 and 51, I love this. Jesus answers and says, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these, much greater things. It's, it's like <laughs> modern term. you ain't seen nothing yet, right? There's a lot more that's going to go down in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will see greater things than these even in a couple of days, Nathaniel, at the wedding of Cana, right? Where it says there in verse 11, this was the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It's indeed the promise that Jesus gives to disciples in the, the, uh, the section on the parables in Matthew 13. For whoever has to him more shall be given, but who, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And finally, in verse 51, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened. Wow, what a promise that is. You'll see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. It is significant here that and the, the you, in the English, it does, you know, you all is a plural, right? But you is like one person, right? And it, it switches here. And in verse 51, it's, he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you all will see the heavens open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The angel of the heavens open. Isn't that what happened at the baptism of Jesus? It says, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. Now, this is obviously an allusion to Genesis 28, that account. Remember, Jacob had just stolen the birthright from Esau in that context. 
He's so exhausted from running from Esau that even a stone, he was able to sleep with a stone as a pillow. I'd have a hard time sleeping, but he was so exhausted from running and all of that. Uh, You know, he was a scoundrel, but he loved spiritual things. And he was fearing Esau's wrath. Even in the loneliness of the, the wilderness, God draws near because he loved him, even as a deceiver that could be regenerated and be used for God's purposes. So God comes and comforts him and gives him this vision, this vision at Bethel, and the, the dream to Jacob. It's, it's, it's really a picture of Christ himself and the bond of fellowship between heaven and earth, between God and man. For Jesus is both the Son of God, as Nathaniel professed in verse 49, but as Jesus professes about himself, he is the Son of Man. He's the only mediator between God and man. Jesus himself is the latter. What a tremendous truth. The latter is Christ. Nathaniel, you've not seen nothing yet. And then the heavens opened. We can apply that to considering what Christ has done for us and how he pours out his treasures upon us, the treasures of peace, the treasures of comfort, the treasures of grace, renewed portions of his grace. He, we, we, we know something of the fullness of Christ, and, and he is infinite, and his infinite love will unfold for all eternity to those of us that love him. His power, his mercy, his strength, his transcendence, all of these things will keep unfolding throughout all of eternity. Now, he refers to himself as the Son of Man, a favorite term that he uses, and I believe, no doubt, an allusion to Daniel chapter 7. And we're just going to be able to only read it. Um, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and he gave him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and languages would serve him. His dominion and his everlasting dominion shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man. Well, two points, quick points of application we have here. Are you telling others about Jesus? When's the last time you told someone, come and see, I want to explain this to you. We need to make sure that we've got an accurate gospel message. This is why it's so important to be well-grounded in the faith. Why it's so important to understand something of the doctrine of God that you don't misrepresent a holy God. It's important to study these things. Listen to Arthur Pink. The nature of Christ's salvation is woefully misrepresented in the present day by the present-day evangelist. He announces a Savior from hell rather than a savior from sin. And that is why so many are fatally deceived. For there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire, who have no desire to be delivered from their carnality and worldliness. We need to have an accurate message. We're not just saying, hey, here's your, here's your ticket to get out of hell for free, right? Take your little ticket, right? No, being delivered from sin. Why? Why is that so important? Well, certainly the penalty of hell is now set aside because Christ has paid for it. But then we're able to, to grow and to glorify him. That's man's purpose in this life is to honor him. Secondly, have you met this Christ? If you're here today, he knows you. 
He, it's just like Nathaniel. He knows you, where you came from, your apartment, where you came from, your house, where you came from, Spring Valley. He knows you. He sees you. He, he knows where you've come from. And he says, come and see. He's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's, he's the ladder by which we have access to heaven because he's the only mediator between God and man. Is he calling you today? Do you hear the words, come follow me? Do you know how you can get saved? It's the same way as Nathaniel, a profession of faith. For Nathaniel, he declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Now, you could say those words and not believe in your heart, right? <laughs> but if you say those words with all sincerity, with a renewed heart, with full faith, grace will be poured into your life and you will be alive and joyful like never before. You know, living as an unbeliever is kind of like living life in black and white. But when you become a Christian and the scales are removed and your eyes are open, it's like full color. Everything comes alive. You can see so much clearer. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we invite you, come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you so much for the encouragement that we have here and the example that we have of these first disciples. Grow us, we ask. Be glorified even in each of our lives. Lord, I pray that even this week, you would open up doors of opportunity that we would be able to share the good news of the gospel. Lord, and also when those doors open, that we would not run the other way, but you give us boldness, give us gentleness, give us kindness, give us, give us even a, a much wisdom in knowing how to present the gospel and help us to be true to that gospel message. Oh, Lord, we look to see your church as full. We look to see your kingdom expand. We look to see the gospel spread throughout this world. Oh, Lord, use us as just a small part of that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.